Good morning, and welcome to the Church of St. Martin in the Fields online Palm Sunday service. Today, we will be hearing the seven last words of Christ with reflections by lay people who are members of our congregation. Each will take one of the seven last words of Christ and present a brief reflection on those words. Between their reflections, you will hear the music Haydn wrote just for this service. I hope this presentation will draw you deeper into your contemplation of God's love for us revealed in the passion of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's to accept the 
Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let us pray. Assist us mercifully with your help, O Lord, God of our salvation, that we may enter with joy upon the contemplation of those mighty acts whereby you have given us life and immortality through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
the seven last words of Christ. The first word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Like many people, I often struggle with the notion of forgiveness. Just the other day, I received a Facebook friend request from a former journalism colleague. In the early 70s, he was my boss. To say we didn't get along well would be an understatement. He was never especially supportive of my story ideas, and there were times when I watched him actually assign to himself my own story ideas. He even once lobbied to have me transferred to a lesser job. At the time, it seemed like this guy was out to sabotage my career. And now, 45 years later, my old nemesis is sending me a friend request. What should I do? What would you do? In these days of social distancing, my wife and I spend a lot of time watching movies at home. One we especially loved seeing was the Mr. Rogers film called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I highly recommend it. The film features Tom Hanks playing the role of Fred Rogers, the celebrated children's show host. As you may know, Mr. Rogers isn't really the main focus of the film. Instead, the narrative focuses on the struggles of a young journalist assigned to write a magazine profile about Mr. Rogers. This is a young journalist who reminded me in some ways of my younger self. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that the movie is about forgiveness. We quickly learned that the journalist assigned to follow Fred Rogers is burdened with the emotional baggage of a wayward family member whom the journalist has grown to despise. By the end of the movie though, Fred Rogers has gently guided the journalist along the path of forgiveness. But the key line of the movie comes early on, way before the plot resolves itself, as it inevitably does. There's a scene where Mr. Rogers' TV show is being taped. After Mr. Rogers makes his familiar entrance to, through the living room door and delivers his iconic theme song, he turns his attention to the subject of forgiveness. He shares this secret with the children at home. Someone has hurt my friend, he tells the audience, referring to his journalist friend. He's having a hard time forgiving the person who hurt him. Do you know what that means, to forgive? Fred Rogers goes on to define forgiveness here as a decision we make to release a person from the feelings of anger we have at them. Aha! When I heard that line in the movie, the true nature of forgiveness became a lot clearer. Consider for a moment the startling example of Felicia Sanders, the South Carolina woman whose son, Taiwanza Sanders, was among the nine Charleston church parishioners brutally slain by the young white supremacist, Dylan Roof. I forgive you, she told the defendant at his sentencing hearing three years ago. Felicia Sanders was emphatically not seeking reconciliation, certainly not with this particular unrepentant soul. What she was looking for, I think, was an off-ramp from the constant cycle of anger and the understandable desire for retribution. Felicia took that first step. May God have mercy on your soul, she told the defendant. Felicia Sanders' acts of forgiveness also brought to mind the all-time toughest act to follow, Christ's own declaration of forgiveness from the cross. I've come to see that Mr. Rogers and Felicia Sanders were each pointing me in the direction of Jesus' own astounding act of unconditional forgiveness, an act that dovetails perfectly with Fred Rogers' wise take on forgiveness, a sacred gift that is offered without the promise of getting anything in return. Forgiveness, 
Fred Rogers reminds us, is a decision we make to release a person from the feelings of anger we have at them. Like the young journalist in the movie who reminded me so much of myself, life confronts us with conscious decisions to make. Forgiveness is always an option. And so it was with Jesus crying out on behalf of all humanity, asking his father in heaven to release the entire human race from the rage and the jealousy that flowed like blood in the streets of Jerusalem. Crucify him, we shouted in our ignorance and our unknowing. Father, forgive them, Jesus responds, knowing full well that reconciliation in that time would have to wait for at least three days.
Today you will be with me in paradise. One of the last words of Jesus, as documented in the 23rd chapter of Luke, has different meanings to different people. Jesus, on the cross, says this to the two prisoners that are being crucified with him. Although one of the prisoners respected Jesus, the other mocked him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Jesus still says to both the men that they will be with him in paradise. These sets of words have two meanings to me. These thoughts are related, but one is happier than the other. The first meaning of this last word of Jesus that comes to my mind is death. I worry so much about death that when I start to think about it, I cannot stop. I wonder what really comes next. I wonder about how I live knowing that my life will come to an end. My answer is to live my life to the fullest and know that I have a while before death awaits me. This is the more somber meaning, but it is important to think about sometimes to help you remember your purpose, who you are, and why you are. On a lighter note, this makes me think about a TV show that many of you may have watched called The Good Place. Even though most of us have watched every show on Netflix during this newfound time, I will try not to spoil it too much. The Good Place is a TV show about four humans who die and awaken in a place that they are told is the good place, which is what we think of as heaven. But really, they are in the bad place being tortured by demons that are disguised as humans for a test. The tortures they endure are not physical, they are mental, emotional, and spiritual. In facing these tests, the four humans work through problems together, build relationships, become better people, and eventually prove to the demon in charge that the existing system for evaluating humanity is flawed. They help change the way that the point system that determines if a person is able to get into the good or bad place is measured. In the end, they build a more just system and are able to pass on to the next phase of their existence happily ever after. The challenges they face up give me a few questions. For example, they discover that no new people have been admitted into the good place in hundreds of years because life has just had just become too complicated. One example, buying a tomato did not just mean getting it straight from a farm, but it rather involved using pesticides often and emitting fossil fuels and often employing unlawful labor. These facts made a simple task impossible. Some of all these tasks made living a good life impossible when counted by the existing system. This makes me wonder, is life too complicated? And I think the answer to that question is often yes. It is hard to perform the most simple tasks without facing consequences that you do not even think of. It is hard to make the right decision every day. One way to fight this complexity is to simplify, to find an idea, a happy place a paradise to help keep you happy and centered. This may be the church, or a gym, or anywhere, but it does not have to be a physical location. This is especially important as we are all confined to one physical location at this point in time. I challenge you to find your happy place, your paradise. Being with Jesus in paradise does not mean that we must wait until we die. 
We can be there today by being happy, helpful, a good friend, or being a good family member. These things help us remember our purpose, who we are, and why we are. Even when one of the criminals he was, Jesus was being crucified with mocked him, he still made it clear that paradise was available to everyone, and that paradise is open to everyone. Just trying to be the best person you can be gets you to your own paradise. You may think that my paradise may be a church with an unlimited budget to put in a new sound system, but it's not. Mine is being around people who, that I love, who support me in whatever task awaits me. People who support whoever I am, however I am. Today you will be with me in paradise. Applies to everyone, right now. Amen.
When I was in college, my family was far away in the jungles of Venezuela, and we did not have the resources for me to visit them. There were times when I missed my home and my parents. During holidays and breaks, I could have found myself alone. God had a way of always connecting me to families that invited me in. And so during those four years, I found myself sharing meals and community, finding Jesus's love in others. It is at those times when we are feeling alone or get grieving loss that through others we are comforted and we ourselves are able to give comfort. Even as Jesus is dying on the cross, he sees his mother's suffering and his disciple John's suffering. He knows their needs can be met through each other and reminds them of this. John and Mary embrace his words. And from that hour, that disciple took Mary to his own home. Now I have my own home too, one that can become the community of love as well and connect others who like Mary and John are able to help each other heal. Recently, a young man from Venezuela came to St. Martin's. He had walked from Venezuela to Texas to escape the brutality of the current regime. One of the largest displacement crises has been happening in Venezuela. Over three million people have fled political repression and economic collapse. I had not realized until that time how deeply I was mourning the destruction of my homeland until he and I started to reminisce about things we missed while preparing arepas for dinner. Thanks to the St. Martin's community, Giuseppe is safely in an apartment awaiting the processing of his asylum case. And so in this simple way, we help each other grieve. I realize God works through each of us, connecting us as we face adversity, but it is us who need to recognize and act on that call, just like Mary and John did. In hearing Jesus's words, behold your son, behold your mother, it struck me how many of us are being called to open our homes, hearts, or resources to others at this time. We are called to expand that definition of family to people Jesus loves and to help each other through times of hardship and loss. We are a support to each other, a source of God's love. We are God's family.
This is the word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever been in a bathroom or sanctuary and had the lights turned out on you? Someone perhaps thought they were the last to leave. You might say, hey, I'm in here, someone's here, turn on the lights. It's terrible to feel as if we've been forgotten. Is this what it means to be forsaken? Lost, alone, and in the dark? When I was in Exeter on our first choir tour, I got lost on a walk on the first day. Now, Exeter Cathedral was built on a hill at the top of the town. As I became increasingly lost, I saw a steeple, so I walked toward it. That's gotta be it, right? I was walking downhill. I couldn't have been walking toward the cathedral. It was on the top of the hill, remember? Yet I had convinced myself that I knew where I was going. Soon, panic set in. I wished for anyone or anything to come and rescue me. Turns out, rescue was that wrong church at the bottom of the hill. There, I became reoriented. I realized I needed to walk up to get where I was supposed to be, to walk the way up that had led me down. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Being lost, having no sense of direction or orientation to where we are, nor how we're related to one another. At this moment on earth, we are somehow not only lost from the familiar rhythm of our daily routines, going out to grab coffee or groceries, we are lost from connection to others. Yes, there is FaceTime and technology, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, we are lost to the very real and felt sense of having the same moment pass between us, a shift in the air, getting goose flesh, that space being held between us as we journey in tandem through a moment. Being connected to one another feels especially important to us now when we're forced to stay apart. How can we be social and yet separated from one another? Disconnection from others means a loss of community. And we're missing the natural response of the body in reaction to human touch, the release of oxytocin, the good feeling that comes from warm, healthy, human, physical contact. Being alone invokes as well that aspect of our relationship with God that is broken. In the crucifixion, Christ is longing for communion with God and receives much less. He is left alone in the darkness, in the shadow of death. I'm reminded of Shekinah, the concept in Jewish mysticism that means God's divine presence and the joy of connection. In Shekinah, God is more readily perceivable. God is omnipresent. God does not dwell in any one place. God remains constantly committed to us, even when we cannot sense God is there, even especially in the dark. Remember that feeling of having the lights turned out on you? As Michael Ramsey put it, the passion of Christ is not about light. It is about the darkness of the crucifixion that absolute death of connection. In the passion, Christ becomes absolutely human in our most desolate, lost, dark, and forsaken place. Lemony Snicket's book, The Dark, tells the story of Laszlo, a boy afraid of the dark and of the basement where the dark lives. 
One night, Laszlo's nightlight burns out and the dark visits his room. It beckons him to go downstairs to find the thing Laszlo does not even know he is looking for. Laszlo becomes aware that the dark covers everything. It's everywhere. The dark directs Laszlo to open a dresser drawer in the scariest part of the basement. And there, lying in the murkiest corner, is a fresh bulb for his nightlight. As Snicket puts it, without the dark, everything would be light and you would never know when you needed a light bulb. This is the Holy Spirit at work. The darkness, our fear, our being lost, our isolation, provides the resource, a bulb, that leads us to illumination. Embracing this middle place, the dark, invites the Holy Spirit to intercede. This is the mystery of the darkness at Easter Vigil. Darkness, the place that whispers to us of the unseen, the unknowable, and reveals a path. In the quiet unrest of the sacred dark, we receive direction that reorients us to the place where God is found. And that, my friends, according to Shekhinah, is everywhere. I recall this prayer of Thomas Merton when I'm feeling lost, alone, and in the dark. Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.
I thirst. These two words that Jesus spoke as he was dying are so profound to me because of all the words he said that day. They're the most human. If you've ever been in a relationship with anyone, parent, child, spouse, friend, chances are you've heard or said variations of these simple words. Mommy, I'm thirsty. Sweetie, if you go into the kitchen, could you bring me a glass of water? The cry is so human, the feeling so familiar, it's almost impossible to imagine not responding. In fact, as I was thinking about this, a couple of things kept coming to mind. First, the fact that Jesus said the words to begin with. He had endured so much for so many hours with so little to say. These words had to come as a surprise to the people around him, but it was what happened next that really stuns me. A soldier gets a stick with a sponge on the end, dips it in vinegared wine, and holds the sponge to Jesus' lips. Not one of Jesus' disciples, not his mother. That would have made sense. But this was a soldier, one of the same guards who'd spent hours torturing and tormenting him. Were the words Jesus spoke literal or metaphorical? I suspect they were both. Jesus so often infused his words with dual or triple meaning, educational, historic, biblical. I thirst. If I take these words literally, I thankfully can't relate. I've wanted something to drink. That's not uncommon but I haven't ever been thirsty to the point of physiological danger. I live in a place and at a time that whenever I want water or something to drink, it's easy to get, and I'm grateful for that. But here's what can happen for me. In uncertain times, and these are uncertain times, if I get scared or feel overwhelmed I push more deeply into myself. Feelings of aloneness and helplessness can grow. I don't always know when that's happening until one day I realize that my soul is parched, thirsty. Living in that solitary place is dangerous. But as soon as I get the words out, my cry to God in prayer, I thirst. Faith and the church rush in with fresh, clear water to wet my lips, renew my soul, and remind me that I am never alone.
In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. John Bowring. The sixth recorded word of Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. However, if you look at the older translations, you will notice that other words, such as accomplished, are often used instead. This is because the actual Greek word in John's Gospel, tetelestai, is conjugated in the perfect tense, which does not exist in English. One scholarly source translates the sixth word of Christ as, it is finished and will continue to be finished. The idea of a thing remaining finished and unchanging in the midst of our roiling, overheated cauldron of a world brings to mind an image that may surprise you. I thought of the sticks that candy makers submerge in a hypertonic sugar solution to create rock candy. The molecules of sugar, looking for a way out of their overcrowded environment, latch onto the stick and form crystals. Other molecules, recognizing themselves in the crystals, form yet more crystals around and on top of them. You have heard it said from of old that Jesus died for our sins. But I say to you that the two million Africans who died in the Middle Passage from Africa to America also died for our sins, and their deaths are crystallized to the cross of Christ. The Africans who survived and, as slaves, built this country in which we now live, also suffered and died for our sins. Their lives, too, are crystallized to the cross of Christ. When over 5,000 African Americans were lynched and the Senate would not declare lynching a federal crime because of the overriding need to protect Southern womanhood, while the majority of white America told the leaders of the civil rights movement that they were pushing too hard and moving too fast, those lynching victims died for our sins. That strange fruit is crystallized to the cross of Christ. When the United States government sent thousands of Native American children to American Indian boarding schools, hiring Christian religious orders to kill the Indian to save the man, those children suffered and died for our sins. Their lives and deaths are crystallized on the cross of Christ. When nuns and sisters and priests and their staff were raped and murdered in El Salvador, and Guatemala, with American money bankrolling their torturers, they most certainly suffered and died for our sins. Their suffering and death are crystallized on the cross of Christ. When the Israeli government bulldozes Palestinian and Bedouin homes and burns Palestinian olive orchards and confiscates Palestinian wells to make room for illegal Jew Jewish settlements, they do it with American money. When they return the bodies of Palestinian prisoners who have died in prison and who have already had organs harvested and show signs of pharmaceutical testing, those Palestinians suffered and died for our sins. Their suffering is crystallized on the cross of Christ. Now, if we make allowance for John Donne's misunderstanding, which he shared with everyone of his time about who exactly crucified Jesus, then his sacred sonnet number 11 rings uncomfortably true. 
spit in my face, you Jews, and pierced my side. They killed once an inglorious man, but I crucify him daily, being now glorified. And it doesn't take hideous sins, or even obvious or visible ones, to take part in the daily crucifixion. All it takes is complacency, a willingness to look the other way, because we are still enjoying the fruits of the atrocities visited upon others. We need our cheap coffee, our cheap oil, our cheap labor, our cheap food, our sense of entitlement and superiority, and the peace of mind of a Western hemisphere without communists. When we avail ourselves of these things, while sublimating or denying all the suffering and death that brought them to us, we crucify afresh the glorified Christ. The final verse of John Bowring's familiar hymn is this, bane and blessing, pain and pleasure by the cross are sanctified. Peace is there that knows no measure, joys that through all time abide. Every crystal that is formed on the cross is holy. The suffering of every person there is sanctified and every sacrificed soul is at peace and free at last. At least that is my hope. And the cross of Christ still stands towering o'er the wrecks of time and will continue to stand gathering sacred stories round its head sublime.
the seventh word. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. These are the last of Jesus' words, and I find them comforting. He's gone through hell physically, and yet we hear he is in God's hands, with nothing left but his spirit. Despite the torture, his essence and soul remain. I'm awed by Jesus' spirit, and I'm awed by mine and yours too. I don't believe they ever die, but sometimes we feel like they are hard to find. My question is, what are the tools we use to find our spirits when we feel like we are losing them? During Lenten crises, we often feel tested to find our spirits and reconjure our souls. We all go through grueling times physically and emotionally. I know I have. In this world, there is sickness, there is violence, there is undermining, there is anxiety. There are feelings that we are not loved, that we are not worthwhile. We feel that God has forsaken us. We all have enemies that threaten our hearts and essence of our beings. We know what they are. However, I believe that all of us here and listening have already decided our souls are worth keeping, maintaining, and loving. We all have tools we use to find our spirits. Some are more effective than others, and I can tell you about mine. For those of you who know me, there isn't any doubt that I thrive in community and socially. I am an extrovert who loves to be outside, especially shoulder to shoulder, at an outdoor coffee shop or a restaurant or bar with family and friends, and with others who I believe will soon be my friends. I also love going to church and seeing my church family. When I am in those situations, I feel especially alive and well. It is there that I'm in my element. I'm doing what I'm meant to do. My brain and spirit are one. The COVID virus is truly my enemy. So, what are my tools to keep my spirit and soul together against this enemy when the coffee shops, churches, and cafes are closed and my family is not available to comfort me? I have a few I like to use. The first thing I do is take the temperature of my soul. I listen for the birds. During the night when the birds are asleep, I mumble the Our Father to myself. Another one is more 21st century. I love my Bing homepage that provides a beautiful picture from different places in the world on my PC. It changes every day. I imagine what it would be like there and I find myself on a two minute vacation. I wonder whether I should add it to my bucket list. When I'm in touch with my spirit, I pause and I enjoy the birds, my prayer and my Bing page thoughtfully for a bit. If any of these things is a challenge, it's an indicator that I really need to stop and focus on my spirit that God so lovingly gave me. Taking a time out is not easy, but it's necessary. It settles me. If I can't hear the birds, I have to stop and listen carefully for them. When I can hear the birds through the noise in my head, I quiet down. When I mumble the Our Father late at night when no one is up but me, I remumble it until I can hear the words in my head. I calm down and I'm able to add a Hail Mary in an act of contrition. Other times, I look at my Bing page and click on the description. I find myself taking a relaxing tour. Sounds basic, but not always easy to do. If I can't hear the birds, the Our Father, or notice my Bing page, 
it's time to go to the next level. For me, this includes taking a walk and looking at all the colors I see, such as the various grays in the street that look blue, or the greens and this time of year, yellow, whites, yellows, and pinks in the trees. When I'm having a really hard time finding my soul, Psalm 139, the inescapable God, soothes me, reminds me how much God has always loved and will forever. He loved me when he knit my soul in my mother's womb and has loved me throughout. God is always with me, although I sometimes forget, question, or dismiss him. Nevertheless, he leads me and I'm always in his right hand. I remember that I've gotten through other crises that I didn't think I could manage. My resilience is hard for me to remember and love is hard to feel when I can't reach or feel my spirit. As I think about my tools during this Lent and COVID crisis, I see a common theme. All of them give me joy and speed my spirit to love myself, you and God. God has given us each a unique spirit that is wonderful and appreciated. What are your tools? I really would like to know. Thank you.
Let us pray. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name. Amen. If you like this content, we'd love if you would make a donation in support of our ongoing ministry. Online donations are preferred at this time. Please visit stmartinec.org slash give. Our buildings are closed, but worship continues digitally on our website, as well as on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Visit stmartinec.org slash worship to connect with Sunday and weekday worship. You can also visit stmartinec.org slash holyweekeaster for the full schedule of our Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday worship services. And of course, you can always stay in touch and learn more about what's going on at St. Martin's and with our other programs and ministries by visiting stmartinec.org and looking around. Thanks again for joining us.